The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Ooh, this is a good one, too. Everybody remember Don McLean, American Pie? He sang this psalm in a, uh, uh, as a song, just like the birds did with um, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He did that with this psalm here. This is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked us of a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Brutal, brutal uh, passage, but it's in the Lord's word. And I had somebody uh, read a commentary one time where it said, uh, obviously the last verse of that psalm is inexcusable. And I thought, your comment is inexcusable. The Lord has allowed it. It's his word. He's sovereign. We're not. There's so, a whole story behind that, actually. What's that? There's a whole story behind Oh, that. I bet there is. I bet, and I'd love to hear it. I, I, I <laughs> can't even imagine, but uh, I've not read any commentaries specifically on that. Maybe a couple, but uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a brutal-sounding thing. But in the end, the Lord is sovereign. He told them to go into Canaan and destroy the land of Canaan and destroy every living thing, every man, woman, and child. And that was what they were told to do. Are you going to be obedient to the Lord, or are you going to let your emotions dictate your theology? And that is uh, uh, the problem with almost all churches in the world. Not all, but you know, most churches allow emotions to step in and dictate their theology. And as soon as they do that, they start the happy course down. So you always have to say, I'm going to stand on this word. This is God's word. Nothing else takes priority or precedence over it. So anyway... Let's see here. Today, our sermon is Leviticus 16, verses 23 through 34. And we're going to finish up the passage today. This is entitled Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Part 3. And before I start reading these verses, I want you to know that, like the book of Jonah, the ending of this is not really, um, it's not really favorable to the Jewish people. Okay? They're the ones that rejected Christ. The ultimate conclusion of the Day of Atonement sermon today is because they rejected Christ. That's reflected here. It's reflected in the New Testament. It's reflected all the way through the Old Testament. Okay? I am not anti-Semitic. I am the least anti-Semitic person I know, but I am pro-Bible. And when the Bible calls somebody out on something, you stand on the Word of God. Okay? I support the nation of Israel because Israel is back in the land because God has planted them back there for his purposes. He has made a promise to the Jewish people that he would preserve them despite their rebellion forever. And they are being led to the point where that will come about. 
but before it comes about, two-thirds of the nation of Israel is going to die. All right, we know this. The Bible is written. The word is written. It says so. But um, if somebody is watching this and they say, well, that guy's an anti-Semite, they have no idea who I am and they have no idea what I believe. I just simply take the Bible at face value and that's where it stands. So here we go. Leviticus 16, starting in verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Does everybody remember what the linen garments pictured? His incarnation. He put on garments of flesh. Okay, he's now taking those off. All right, we'll go on. Verse 24, and he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come in to the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses." Of the book of Leviticus, Matthew Easton says the following, No book contains more of the very words of God. He is almost throughout the whole of it the direct speaker. This book is a prophecy of things to come, a shadow whereof the substance is Christ and his kingdom. The principles on which this book is to be interpreted are laid down in the epistle to the Hebrews. It contains in its complicated ceremonial the gospel of the grace of God. He is right. And in the book of Leviticus, there is one chapter that stands out above the others. It is this chapter, which we have been in for two weeks already. You might say at this point, well, Charlie, the things we've seen are already more types and pictures like we've already seen a thousand times since we started this book. And this is true. But there is more. Not only do these things point to Christ, as we have seen and we will continue to see today, But they are also presented in such a way that when they were fulfilled, Israel should have seen it a mile away. But they missed it. Right in human history, recorded there in the pages of the New Testament, is a parallel event which occurred to help us fully process the marvel of what Jesus Christ did for us. May we all, Jew and Gentile, unstop our ears and open our eyes. Our text verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 42. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? 
seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. Concerning the Day of Atonement, there is the type that is found in Leviticus 16. Then there is the anti-type that is found in Christ's atoning death. And then there is also a parallel account to show us what the ramifications of rejecting Christ will lead to. That is found in the Gospels, the Epistles, and from the words of the Lord in the book of Revelation. Rejecting Christ is not a minor issue. The premise of the Bible is that all people have but one master. We are either slaves of sin bound under Satan, or we are slaves of righteousness bound to Christ. There is no other position, and apart from Christ, there is no other way to be reconciled to God. Even the law of Moses itself, given to Israel under a set covenant with the Lord, only pointed to Christ Jesus. It never saved anyone, and it cannot do so now. Only Christ can do this. As you will see today, Israel's attempts to fulfill the law on their own were futile. And in their supposed attempt of finding Jesus at fault under the law and doing away with him because of it, they actually violated that same law. As happens in Scripture, there is often a sad irony in the outcome of things when we attempt to usurp God's plans. May we never attempt to do so. Instead, let us cherish what he has done, revel in the grace of Christ, and accept that grace for the saving of our souls. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, once before I uh, get into the actual sections of the sermon that I want to give you today, I want to read you a few passages, which I have read week after week after week, so that you understand our place in regards to the law of Moses. All right, so we're going to go to first to uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm going to read you first verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. We had the priesthood of Aaron, which is what we're looking at now. We see that Aaron was a fallible man. He had to sacrifice for his own sins, and that sacrifice, the bull that we looked at, pictured Christ because only Christ can take away Aaron's sins, right? Okay, when that law changed, there's by necessity a change of the priesthood. We had a mediator for the priesthood of the law of Moses. That was Aaron. We have a new covenant. We have a new law given to us, and that needs a new mediator, a new priesthood, and that is Christ Jesus. Verse 18 of the same chapter. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. Annulling means doing away with. It is done, the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. We talked about that in detail last week. And then in uh, chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. As I say, week after week after week, the word obsolete means that you are still bound to that and you must do it, right? Absolutely not. Obsolete means it is done, it is over, and we have something new in its place. We have the new covenant in Christ's blood. And then in chapter 10, it says, in verse 9, he takes away the first. He's speaking about the law of Moses, taken away that he may establish the second. There's only one law at a time. The law of Moses is done. It is obsolete. It is annulled. It is taken away, and a new one is put in its place. That's followed on by Colossians 2, verse 14, which says that the law is nailed to the cross. The symbolism is that Christ embodies the law. He lived it perfectly in accord with the Gospels, which shows us that, and then he gave his life up. His body was nailed to the cross, and when he died, the law of Moses died with him. Something new is coming out in the new covenant in Christ's blood. 
Our first thought today is washed in water. It's verses 23 through 34. Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. <laughs> For the day of atonement, sin offering sacrifices, all picturing Christ, the high priest wore his special white garments, which were detailed in verse 4. With those sacrifices accomplished, he now takes them off. It notes here the words which he put on when he went into the holy place. These special garments are tied into his entrance into the holy place. With these duties conducted, they are complete. They are now removed. The word for take off is pashat. It is a word used only twice so far in the Bible. One in the stripping of Joseph of his coat of many colors, and then in the skinning of the burnt offering, which is found in Leviticus 1 verse 6. The word is used in the sense of raiding, as in enemies raiding a city. This isn't a simple removal of clothes, but an active, vibrant stripping of them. There, within the tent of meeting, the garments are so removed, and they are left there. The root of the word to leave means to rest. They are laid up, or they are rested in the tabernacle. They will not be used again. What we are seeing here is symbolically revealed in the Gospel of John with these words. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Like the high priest's garments, the grave clothes of Christ were worn once, never to be worn again. They were stripped off and rested up as a witness to the resurrection. But these in type were only given as a greater parable of the true clothes of Christ, his humanity, which he had defeated death in, and the body transforming into its eternal glory. Here we see that the annual day of atonement, putting up of these white garments, is seen as a one-time event. Verse 24, and he shall wash his body with water in a holy place. This is the second and final washing to be accomplished by the high priest. The first was in verse 4, which occurred prior to his putting on the white holy garments. With them now taken off, he again washes his body. As seen in verse 4, donning these was a picture of Christ's coming at his first advent. The washing was at the time explained as his birth in a pure and sinless state. He was at that time robed in pure white garments of righteousness. Now that his advent is complete through his own sacrifice, he washes again. It is emblematic of his second birth through the resurrection, where he was cleared of any wrongdoing, acquitted of any guilt, and justified before the Lord, having performed his earthly duties without fault. The iniquities that he bore for us are symbolically washed away in this picture, a picture fulfilled in his resurrection. The washing signifies acceptance for his entrance into heaven itself. That this is so is stated twice in the New Testament. In Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. Jesus then repeats this exact same terminology in Revelation 1 verse 5. Verse 24 continues, put on his garments. 
This is referring to Aaron's customary high priestly garments, every detail of which points to Christ and his ministry on our behalf. If you missed that sermon, you can go back and you can watch it or you can read it and see those amazing details. The advent is complete, and now Christ, pictured by Aaron in these garments, retakes his heavenly position as the true high priest and mediator. Verse 24 going on, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The burnt offering follows the sin offering because only after sin is atoned for can such an offering be considered as acceptable to God. This burnt offering consists of the ram of verse 3, which was for Aaron, and the ram of verse 5, which was for the people. In type, both picture Christ. To understand the detailed meaning of every single aspect of the burnt offering, you would need to go back and watch several earlier Leviticus sermons. In short, these rams picture a complete surrender of the will to God. This follows with Paul's words of Romans 6, verse 7 through 11. He says there, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, the burnt offering, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These rams then symbolize what Paul calls in Romans a living sacrifice to God. As contrary as a living sacrifice may sound, it is pictured here in the death of these rams. The ram, or ayil, denotes strength. The rams as a burnt offering reflect the total commitment of the high priest and the people. Their natural strength is symbolically being offered to God as a living sacrifice. In picture, it looks to Christ who offered all of his natural strength to his Father in his more perfect ministry, and it looks to those who follow Christ who are to do likewise. Verse 25, the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. Ve'et kelev ha'chatat yaktir ha'mizbeach. And the fat, the sin offering, burn like incense on the altar. Only the fat of the sin offering is burnt on the altar. This is the fat of the bull of verse 11 and the fat of the goat of verse 15. The pieces of fat of the animals and what they symbolize was recorded in earlier sermons. Every single detail of which points to Christ. In short, they represent the abundance of the very deepest parts of Christ the man. Fat is the abundance and health of life. The fat on the entrails represents the inner purity of Christ. The fatty lobe on the liver represents his emotions and feelings. And the two kidneys with their fat signify his mind and reasoning. These are offered to the Lord by fire, burning as if incense, as the word katar here denotes, because they symbolize Christ's most intimate aspects. They are the very substance of who he is and are thus returned to the Lord by fire. His earthly work was complete, it was executed perfectly, and the substance of who he is now returns to God as a sweet fragrance to him. Verse 26, And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This is now the last time in scripture that La Azazel, or For Azazel, is mentioned. The person who conducted the goat for Azazel was noted with a unique word used just one time in the Bible, iti. It is a man who stands in readiness. 
The word comes from et, meaning time, and thus he is a timely man or a man of years and discretion, suitable for the task. He pictures Christ, who, as we saw last week, is that timely man. This man had to wash both his garments and his body in water, and then he was allowed to come once again into the camp. This person is typical of Christ who alone carried away the sins of man and then who was purified in his flesh, which bore our sin at the resurrection before he again entered heaven. Verse 27, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. The fat, symbolizing the most intimate aspects of Christ and the blood of the atonement, are taken from the sacrificial animals. The disposal of the rest of the animal is determined by the use of the blood. Because their blood was brought into the most holy place, the animal must be burned and not consumed. They are taken outside of the camp to a clean place, and they are burned. The acceptance of these animals' deaths as substitutes highlights the extremely merciful act of forgiveness granted to the people. In their cleansing, the animals' bodies now bear the sin of the mediator and the people. And because of this, they were required to be purged from the camp entirely. And not only were they purged from the camp, but they were completely burned up. The word used for burn here is saraf. It's a word used, for example, when burning a leprous garment. It is never used in the sense of an offering. Rather, it more reflects the rejection of a thing and a divine purification through incineration. It is a picture of the consequences of sin, meaning the lake of fire. And so what a picture of Christ. In Hebrews 13, we see why these requirements were given here and what they prefigure. It says there, the high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. What was given to Israel in type and shadow is realized in its fullness in Christ. There is a problem which infects man, and its source is that of the devil himself. The only way to defeat what he did was for Christ to take it away from us. We are told that he was made to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. What a bargain that God has offered us through the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. This is the fourth and final washing mentioned in the passage. It again pictures Christ, just as the washing of the one who led the goat into the wilderness. Both are typical of Christ who alone carried away the sins of those who receive him. This is certain because in both verse 26 and verse 28, the verb for wash is singular. Tradition says, and this is why I don't like Jewish tradition in these sermons, tradition says that the animals were carried on poles by four people. But that is not what the Lord wants us to see here. The wording points to one alone who does this work. We are to see Christ alone, who was purified in his flesh, which bore our sin in his earthly body before again entering the presence of his heavenly Father. Verse 29, this shall be a statute forever for you. The words here are lechukat olam, for a statute forever. The word olam means to the vanishing point. As long as the law of Moses was in effect, this rite was to be conducted exactly as prescribed. As the law is fulfilled in Christ, 
there is no longer a statute applicable for God's people in these ceremonies. Christ is our atonement, full and forever. Verse 29 continues, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. The seventh month was originally known as Ethanim in Hebrew. This is found in 1 Kings 8, verse 2. After the Babylonian exile, the Aramaic name Tishri is now used. On the first day of the month was Yom Teruah, or the Day of Trumpets. It is a day which looked forward to the birth of Israel's true king, Jesus. On the tenth day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a day which looks forward to the crucifixion and atoning death of Jesus. And beginning on the fifteenth day commenced Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, a day fulfilled in the coming of Christ, God residing with man, something verified by the resurrection of Christ. The year of Jubilee found in Leviticus 25 was also proclaimed on this tenth day of the month, the Day of Atonement, every fiftieth year. It is this year of Jubilee, or Liberty, that Isaiah wrote about concerning the future work of the coming Christ. The first few lines of that proclamation were read by Christ Jesus at the start of his earthly ministry and which anticipated the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Here's what he read in the synagogue, quoting Isaiah. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 29 continues, You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. It is generally accepted that afflict your souls means to fast. The people were to deny themselves food. However, it certainly also included refraining from any other pleasures and also an active affliction of remembering the sins of the past year and mourning over them. But the word has a greater meaning in Christ where the word ana or afflict is used twice concerning this exact scene. Here's what it says in Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and ana, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the day of atonement, on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was anah, afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as his sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. That pertains to every one of you who is called on Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. As Christ was so afflicted, 
the people were to anticipate this day with the afflicting of their own souls. They were not to do any work of any kind as well, acknowledging that they were in a state of affliction. Nothing regular was to be done, but rather this was to be a high Sabbath. But this goes further than just Israelites. It also says, Behagur Hagar Betokem, the foreigner dwelling among you, was also to afflict his soul. As they received the blessings and the protections provided by the law, they were likewise bound to observe this day. Verse 30, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. The words, the priest, are inserted into this verse, and they're probably incorrect. The priest also needed atonement for himself. It is the Lord who provides atonement. The priest merely accomplishes the ritual. Atonement is solely a gracious granting by the Lord. Aaron is specifically named nine times in this chapter, the last being in verse 23. But he whose name means very high is only a type of Christ to come. In the end, it is all about the Lord, either in the granting of the grace or in the typology fulfilled in these many pictures. In the fulfillment of these things, the Lord's people are atoned for and are pronounced clean from all of their sins. The words of this verse are reflected in Paul's words of Colossians chapter 1, where he says this, And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's the foreigner. That's you. When he wrote to the Colossians, he was writing to Gentile people, and we are included in this day of atonement. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Shabbat Shabbaton, a resting day of solemn resting. This specific term is used only six times in Scripture. Four times it speaks of the weekly Sabbath, once for the day of atonement, and once concerning the year of Jubilee. The people are to rest and to contemplate God and his works on behalf of the people. And again, it says, Chukat Olam, or a statute forever. This was to be observed without fail until its fulfillment was realized in Christ Jesus. Verse 32, And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. The verbs are third person, masculine, singular. They could be translated here, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated, but the intent is surely, and the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate. It is God who ultimately anoints and consecrates. And in type, it is God who anointed and consecrated Christ in fulfillment of these pictures. It is he who came without sin, donning garments of untainted righteousness, termed here in Leviticus, the holy garments. His garments, undefiled by sin, are truly holy garments. Verse 33, Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This verse summarizes the duties outlined in the chapter, and they acknowledge that this was to be done by the subsequent high priest, just as Aaron was specifically noted above. The Day of Atonement is an expansion of the meaning of the sin and burnt offerings given on that day, just as our Resurrection Day celebration is an expansion of the regular Sundays on which we meet in honor of the Lord's Resurrection. All of what was noted to the finest detail has been a picture of Christ and His work. 
Verse 34, this shall be an everlasting statute for you. This is the third time in four verses that chukat olam, or statute forever, is repeated. This is highlighted to show the extreme importance of this law, to take note of it and to not miss the moment when it would be fulfilled. Verse 34 continues, to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. Year by year, atonement was to be made for the children of Israel until they reached their maturity in Christ, and who are then not just children, but sons of God through adoption. The rites and rituals were carefully recorded, and they were to be exactingly followed, so that when they were fulfilled, it would be evident to even the blind if the blind would just open their eyes and see. Verse 34 finishes with these words, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Is this speaking of the first time it was conducted? If so, then these words were written at least six months later. It is now only the first month of the year. Or it could be that the words are anticipatory, stated as an accomplished fact of that which still lay ahead. A third view is that this is speaking of Aaron assuming the official duties in obedience to the command given by God to Moses. No, rather these words are speaking not of Aaron, but of Moses. In verse 2, it said, tell Aaron your brother. Since then, it is said Aaron eight more times in instructions given to Moses to relay to him. Moses did as commanded and passed on the instructions as noted. A day on which atonement is made, a day when our sins are covered and taken away. What a glorious, marvelous trade when by faith we were cleansed. Oh, what a day. The goat is sacrificed for our atonement. Another goat has taken our sins far, far away. We accept that this is true. God's wrath is spent. We are free from our sin. Oh, what a day. Thank you, O God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who fulfills what occurred, our sin debt he did pay. Thank you for what we have learned from your word. Thank you, O God, for this marvelous, glorious day. Our second thought today is fulfilled in Christ. We've read the instructions given by the Lord to Moses. We've analyzed them verse by verse and even at times word by word. We have seen the prophetic fulfillment of them in Christ. This points to Christ. This is a type of Christ. This is a picture of Christ. But what we have seen is not the end of the pictures. Our text verse today spoke of those who are deaf and blind. The Lord called Israel his servant and said that they were blind. He said they failed to observe as well. Those verses came from a chapter dealing with the servant of the Lord, meaning Christ, who is set in contrast to the servant of the Lord, meaning Israel. In opening of that passage, he spoke of the true servant, Christ, with these words. This is from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. This sets up both the contrast between and the call made to Israel and the Gentiles and how each would respond. Reading the New Testament, we see that Christ is truly the fulfillment of all of these things. The patterns are deep, they are exact, and they are rich. But we can only receive them by faith, not by sight. 
Jesus cited the substance of the words from Isaiah that I just read concerning the deaf and the blind in the New Testament. Here's what he says in John 9. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In Leviticus 16, Aaron, or very high, was to bathe and then put on the special holy linen garments. That was Christ's incarnation coming in human flesh. It is he who is very high and our true high priest. The garments, as we carefully detailed, point to Christ and his earthly body, pure, unsullied, perfect, and yet coming in the likeness of sinful human flesh. Immediately, the account goes from donning the holy garments into mentioning the offerings for the Israelites. Two kid goats as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. They were specifically said to be from the congregation of the children of Israel. Thus, in type, they are Christ descended from Israel, coming from them. The entirety of Christ's life is summed up in these two events, his coming and his offering. Everything between those is implied in the offering, holy perfection. This shows us that even though the Day of Atonement was a set day for Israel, it is not a set day for its fulfillment, a mistake that almost all theologians make. Rather, it is the span of the life of Christ culminating in his sacrifice on whatever day that would occur. After this, a bull for Aaron's sin offering was mandated. As we saw, the bull is Christ. It was required for Aaron and his household. Christ gave of himself for them. Following this, it notes bringing in the two goats before the Lord, both picturing Christ's work. But this is where Israel turns from the Lord. Instead of recognizing his person, his nature, and his work as a nation, they rejected him. To demonstrate how blind they had become, he gave them an object lesson for them to consider. They missed it in its totality. What the Gentiles accepted by faith, the Jews rejected by sight, literally. In all four Gospels, Christ's work is carefully recorded And just prior to his crucifixion, we read the following. Now, while I'm reading this, remember, we're talking about two goats which were presented before the Lord. Remember that. Okay, this is a parable. This is not an enactment. This is a parable. But think of what I'm going to give you now. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing the multitude, one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, why is this recorded? 
Christ is the fulfillment of all of the types and shadows given. He's the bull. He's the rams. He's both goats. So why is this given? Israel should have seen this and believed. The Gentiles did, and they still do. What we have here is an object lesson for Israel, not an actual enactment of the Day of Atonement rituals, but a contrast to them, showing what Israel did accept instead of what they should have accepted. Two men who are probably very close in age stand before Pilate and the congregation of Israel. Keep thinking of the hairy goats, picturing sinful human people, okay? Both are named Yeshua, Jesus. Although not all Bibles record the full name of Jesus Barabbas, some do, but most reliable Bibles at least footnote it. This was his true name. Thus, both have the same title. Barabbas is Aramaic for son of Abba. One of Jesus' titles is the son of God, whom he called Abba. Therefore, you have two men, like named, Jesus, son of Abba, standing and awaiting a decision before Pilate. Christ came to be both our atoning sacrifice, La Yehovah, or for the Lord, and the bearer of our sins, La Azazel, or for Azazel. But Israel rejected this. It was determined before creation that Christ would come and fulfill these pictures. It was also known to God that Israel would reject them when he came. And so to show them their rejection of Christ's completed work, this account is recorded to stand as a witness against them. Christ did, in fact, die for our sins, and Christ did, in fact, bear our sins away. But both of these actions were rejected by Israel. After the bull of the high priest, the goat for the people, which was selected La Yehovah, or for the Lord, was brought forth and slaughtered. Christ died for the people of Israel, but they rejected his offering explicitly and from their own mouths. In defiance of the Lord and in contempt of Christ, who came to show them the Father, they called out, His blood be on us and on our children. The sin offering, the cross of Calvary, was rejected. The blood of bulls and goats, according to the book of Hebrews, can never take away sin. Only Christ, Israel's Messiah, could do so. But collectively, they rejected their only means of salvation, calling down upon themselves a curse rather than a blessing. They subconsciously know that this is true as well. When Mel Gibson filmed The Passion of the Christ, there was one line in the movie that the Jews demanded that he had removed from that movie. That is the same line that they spoke in defiance of the Lord. His blood be on us and on our children. Until they retract this, there can be no atonement for national Israel. Each Jew must come to Christ individually, just as with all people. Again, the goat is Christ. The blood is Christ's. The atonement is Christ's. The purification is Christ's. It is all Christ. As we saw, Paul says in Romans 8.3 that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. In this, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is the purpose of designating the two hairy goats. They picture Christ who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but who prevailed over it. That Christ died for both Israel and the Gentiles is recorded by John. Here's what he says. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but he also would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. 
And in Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, we read, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, nor with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. After the atoning sacrifice came the second part of Christ's work, that of the goat La Azazel, or for Azazel. Now concerning this term, there are quite a few opinions about what this word means. One view is that it is a mountain about 12 miles east of Jerusalem known by Jewish writings as Har Azazel, meaning the mountain of Azazel. This is wrong from the outset. The Torah was received by Moses in the wilderness. It wasn't until eons later, at the time of David or even Solomon, that this rite would have been conducted in Jerusalem. That is incorrect. The second is that this is the same concept as the two birds which were used for the purification of the leper from a few chapters back. The ritual for the two and the symbolism of the birds is actually entirely different. One bird was set free after being plunged into the water-blood mixture of the other. Nothing like that is done here. That was a picture of Christ's atoning death and resurrection. This is Christ's atoning death and bearing away our sins. The most common translation of Azazel is she-goat of going away, and thus Bibles say the scapegoat. But Leviticus 16 never uses the word ez or she-goat. Instead, it uses sa'ir or he-goat. One would have to use what's called the gender inversion principle in this, making Christ a male into the body of Christ a female. But the work is done for the body, not by the body. This does not match. Scapegoat is incorrect. The correct option is that Azazel is Satan. He is in opposition to God. Some say that Azazel can't be Satan because that name is never used again for the devil in the Bible. But that is no argument at all. In the New Testament, Jesus and others call Satan Beelzebub. That comes from the Old Testament, Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, a false god. The reason why he can be called Satan in the New is because an offering to any false god is by default an offering to the devil. Satan is also called the devil, the tempter, the wicked one, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, and so on. And metaphors are used to describe him as well. A wolf, a roaring lion, a great dragon, and a serpent. Many of these are used only once in scripture. La Azazel, set in opposition to La Yehovah, describes one in type who is set in opposition to the Lord. And this is a natural translation of Azazel, one who has separated himself from God. That Azazel is pointing to Satan is attested to by the passage from Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua, typical of Christ, is stood before the angel of the Lord and Satan. The picture being made in these two goats bears this out. As a marvelous clue that this is the case, the first time that La Azazel is used is in Leviticus 16, verse 8. Make a mark there. Exactly 33 verses later, in Leviticus 17, verse 7, it says, They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons, after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations." The word translated as demons there is lasa'erim, or for the goats. It is the same word, sa'ir, used for the goats of Leviticus 16. Luke says that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age. His ministry was three years, meaning that he was about 33 when he was crucified. 
These 33 years are prefigured in the 33 verses from the introduction of La Azazel to what the term is pointing to, the goat demons. The goat for Azazel was to be taken into the wilderness, a place which in scripture is noted as the abode of evil spirits. There it was to be released. It was never to return again to the people. Christ is our sin bearer. He went into the pit of death and there delivered the sins of mankind to that pit where the devil and his demons will someday be cast. The goat for Azazel is Christ carrying our sins to where and to whom they belong. Not only did Israel reject their atonement pictured in the first goat, they also rejected the removal of sins pictured in the second. Both Mark and Luke specifically record that Barabbas was a murderer. But more, Peter in Acts does as well, saying this to the people from Acts chapter 3. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied. He's speaking to Israel in Acts 3 in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In the goat, the guilt for the sin was to be removed, taken from the Lord's sight, so that the people stood before him faultless. But they rejected the atonement, the cross of Calvary, and they rejected the removal. And even more, they collectively violated their own law, the law of Moses, in the process of rejecting Christ. In Numbers 35, we read these words, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. This is exactly what Israel did. They took a ransom in Christ Jesus to pay the price of a murderer who was already condemned. And so why is this account of Jesus and Barabbas important? It is because Christ was intended to fulfill each picture of this scene. And he did, in fact, fulfill it for all of us. He was to be the sacrifice. He was to be the sin bearer. And he was to be the timely man. But Israel rejected each. They called for the blood of the sacrifice to return to them. They called for a murderer instead of a sin bearer, and they rejected the return of the timely man. In rejecting these, they have then rejected him as high priest under the new covenant. Their guilt, according to the law of Moses, stands as a witness against them, and their guilt in rejecting what the law pointed to likewise stands. Because of failing to have their sin carried away for Azazel, twice in the book of Revelation, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Until they come to Christ, I hate to say it, but Satan is their God. It is with the Antichrist, not with Christ, that they will sign a seven-year peace deal. As Christ is the final sacrifice for the sins of the people, there can be no atonement for their national guilt. Such is the nature of rejecting the one to whom the rites and rituals of the law pointed. As an extra note concerning the three fall feasts, all of them are recorded in order in Christ's birth his trial and death, and resurrection. As I said, Yom Teruah, or the Day of Trumpets, pictures Christ's birth as Israel's king. Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? After that, he was crucified in fulfillment of Yom Kippur. 
And after that, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is seen in the resurrection, is noted in the words of John 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the fulfillment of tabernacles because the word dwelt there is the same as the Greek word from the Greek translation of the Old Testament where he put on a tent and dwelt among us. These are the things that the Bible testifies to. I've attempted to stick to the Bible in almost all circumstances and for the simple reason that the Bible stands alone as the witness of God to what he has done through his son, our Lord. Having said that, I would like to add in a final thought derived from the Talmud. There was, according to the Talmud, a tradition that a scarlet thread held by the high priest of Israel would miraculously turn white each year on the Day of Atonement after the goat for Azazel was led away. The Talmud, however, states this in Tractate Yoma 39b. The rabbis taught that 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, the lot did not come up in the high priest's right hand, meaning that the cross of Calvary, which it pictures, was not effective. Nor did the tongue of scarlet wool, the bearing away of the sins by Azazel, become white. So both of them were rejected. The changing of the scarlet thread to white was an annual acknowledgement to the people of the words of Isaiah, where he said these words, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Among other things, the Talmud is a recorded history of the Jewish people, and thus it stands as evidence that something historically occurred. I read a rabbinic commentary which chastised Christians for using the Talmud as a polemic against Jews, as if we have no right to refer to their own writings stating that the statement was taken out of context and implying that it would be more likely that the scarlet thread didn't turn white because of the Jews who apostatized and followed Jesus rather than the traditional Christian thought that Jesus is actually the one and true final atonement for the people's sins. He further went on to say that the miraculous events in Israel were already steadily on the decline for a lengthy period of time because the people had already been in a state of decline in their attitude towards God. Thus, he said, it was not actually a surprise that the thread didn't change. But that is both illogical and it's supporting of the Bible itself. Both John the Baptist and Jesus came to do what? Call Israel back to repentance, right? They said, you're in a state of moral decline. Let me call you back. If they had listened and repented, according to the Bible, so God would have pardoned. How much more so when they rejected the one and only true sacrifice who could take away their sins. Further, it is recorded history that Jesus gave Israel the sign of Jonah as a warning. Jonah proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jesus told Israel that as Jonah so proclaimed, so they would be destroyed a year for a day until judgment. And so they were just as he prophesied, and just as both Scripture and the Talmud record. In A.D. 70, 40 years after Christ's advent, they were destroyed. The Day of Atonement passage here in Leviticus 16, the record of the Lord's promised severity and punishment upon Israel for rejecting both him and the prophet whom he promised to send, the witness of the New Testament authors, and a note of confirmation of no atonement for the people of Israel in their own Talmud all show that there is no atonement for Israel apart from Christ. Further, 
The Bible goes on to state that there is no atonement for any Jew or Gentile apart from Christ. The Bible bears witness to us of what the Lord has done in redemptive history for the people of the world. He has shown us what the consequences for rejecting this work are, and he offers us unlimited grace if we will turn to him through Christ and put away deeds of an already fulfilled law. If you're a Jew or a Gentile who is attempting to merit God's favor through observance of the law of Moses, you are God's enemy, and you will perish in your arrogance for rejecting what he alone can do and what he alone has done. He stepped out of the eternal realm. He put on garments of flesh. He walked among his people, and he fulfilled the law which he gave to them. After this, he gave his life in exchange for the sins of the world. His work demonstrates that he is fully capable of this, and his resurrection proves that it is so. He is the timely man who came back from the barren wilderness after conducting away our sins forever, proven in his glorious resurrection. Come unto Christ, be reconciled to God through his shed blood, and put away your selfish, arrogant deeds which can never satisfy God. Everyone who thirsts, come unto the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Christ Jesus, our salvation, offers you pardon, full atonement, and the carrying away of your sin burden once and for all time. Come, poor sinner, to the fount of everlasting blessing, which is found at the foot of Calvary's cross. I would ask that you have never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, that today would be the day. The Bible gives us the instructions in how to be saved. It's believing in the gospel. That's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3, 4, right in that area. Go read that. It says that Christ came. He was bar- He uh, lived perfectly. He was buried. Let me read it to you. Let me stop trying to embarrass myself here and just tell you what the gospel is. This is the gospel right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, got to be in 1 Corinthians, Charlie. It says right here. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. This is it, which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, day of atonement, and that he was buried into the tomb he went, and that he rose again the third day according to scriptures. That is the gospel. Now, how do you apply that to your life? Paul gives the directions in Romans chapter 10. He says right here in Romans chapter 10, you know what the gospel is now. And he says, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, meaning I accept that he is the Lord, he went into the grave, he was buried, he took away my sins and he rose again to prove it. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that is it. There's nothing else you have to do. I was talking to her earlier. Lots of you came out of the Catholic Church. I came out of Catholic Light, which is the Episcopal Church. And they they tell you, you can't know your final destiny. You can't be assured of your salvation. You have to go through the church. You have to go through the Pope. You have to do this and that. I go through Jesus Christ. The church didn't replace Jesus. It doesn't augment Jesus. It doesn't help us get to heaven. The cross of Calvary is it. 
And there is nothing else that will ever reconcile you to God except the shed blood of Christ. And that is all pictured in chapter after chapter after chapter of sacrifices and offerings, all pointing to the work of Christ. Each one unique, but each one giving us a taste of what he did. The fat, the skinning of the animal, the carrying of the blood to this place or that place or one place or another, the burning of the animal outside the camp. Every single detail points to one man and one man alone, Jesus Christ. Call on him. Be reconciled to God, and woohoo, it will be forever. As it says in the Bible, eternal salvation. There's no such thing as purgatory that was made up by man years and years later. There's no such thing as these. You stick to the scriptures. You know, we're at the 500th year right now. Next month, 500th year of the Reformation. And I was reading a comment on the uh, Reformation this morning saying how the churches are starting to get back together. That's no Reformation at all. That's an anti-Reformation because this church believes that you cannot know your salvation and that you must go through this church in order to be saved. These people broke away and they said, we are going to trust God alone and not any man for our salvation. And now they're starting to come into this one world religion exactly as the Bible said would occur. A time where the people would fall away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the Jews would take preeminence once again, 144,000 of them, preaching this gospel to the world one last time before judgment falls on the earth. Call on Christ and be reconciled to him through his shed blood and only that. Nothing, there is nothing added to work of Christ. Nothing. Our closing verse comes from Romans 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. They will have their day of atonement someday. It's after the rapture of the church, and then God will again focus on the people of Israel, and they will call on him. But two-thirds of them are going to die before that happens. When it says all Israel will be saved, it doesn't mean that all Israel will be saved. It means all of Israel who calls on Christ will be saved. Make sure you get your doctrine straight on that one as well. Next week is Leviticus 17, 1 through 16. In Christ, there is a cleansing flood. It's entitled, The Sanctity of Blood. That'll be our 30th Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you as I do each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Leave your hands in the capable hands, leave your souls in the capable hands of Christ, okay? Our poem, and we'll be done. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments, which he put on, so he shall do, when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there, as I am now instructing you. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people with this proffering. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. In this precept he shall not falter. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp, so to you I note. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering too, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, so you shall do. And they shall burn in the fire, so to you I tell, their skins, their flesh, and their offal as well. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, so shall he do. And afterward, he may come into the camp. These things shall be as I am instructing you. 
This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall do. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. To this law you shall be true, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you according to this word to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And so be sure to depart from this law never and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, to minister before the Lord's face. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting, so shall it be, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel, for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses, as to him he did tell. Lord God, you have sent Jesus to atone for sin. We thank you for doing what we could not do. Through him, new life can begin. And so, O God, we call out through him to you. Hear our cry for mercy upon sinners such as us. Know that we trust in your word and your power to save. We are freed from sin's bondage through Jesus. It was for us that his precious life you gave. Hallelujah to you, O God. Our voices we raise. Hallelujah to you, O God. We give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It certainly is a marvel and a wonder to see every single type that is in the Old Testament fulfilled in him time and time and time again. And sometimes it's a single word that leads us to that conclusion and everything opens up like a flower after that. It is so wonderful to search out the treasures of your word and to time and time again find Christ Jesus. Help us to trust in him. Help us to follow him. Help us to live our lives as those living sacrifices that you have asked of us to be dead to sin, but holy unto you all the days that we walk in your presence. And we know that you will guide us to our heavenly home because of Christ Jesus. It's a guarantee. It is eternal and it is coming soon. And we pray that that uh, when that happens, all of us will stand in your presence, not ashamed of the lives that we have lived in your presence. Help us in this and be glorified in our praises, O oh God. Amen. <laughs>